Good morning. The sermon passage for this morning comes from Mark. It can be found on page 836. It's going to be Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 34. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Every now and then I get a good chuckle out of satire. Uh, so one popular website gave me a, a laugh this past week as they rolled out some headlines on the dawn of a new, another election year. The headline said this, nation's Christians wish God had given them some kind of unimpeachable, incorruptible leader to follow. Now, the joke is, is, it's not that we as believers in this country desire a, a good and righteous and unimpeachable leader. It's obviously a good thing. The joke is that we already have him, and we just don't act like it all the time. The, this morning, from Mark chapter 1, I hope to encourage us with some very basic, but evidently kind of easily forgotten news. If you're a Christian... The news is that you have a good and righteous and powerful and unimpeachable king. And the news is that you are a part of a good and eternal and undefeatable kingdom. Amen? Amen. 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 All right, this is good news. Okay, you have a king. His name is, is Jesus. And Jesus is the king of the eternal kingdom of God. That's good news. Okay, this seems to be one of the the main points of the gospel according to Mark so far. Just look back right before uh, where we just read, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, 
The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay, so in the arrival of Jesus on earth came the arrival of the kingdom of God. So in the person of Jesus, the world, so people, you and I, we're confronted by the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the eternal plan, the eternal purposes of Almighty God. So in Mark, Jesus is the physical embodiment of the eternal kingdom, a kingdom which is, is kind of here now in, in seed form, but, sh, but which will soon be revealed in full bloom, so to speak. So if you want to know or if you need to be reminded what God's eternal rule, what his reign are going to look like, uh, if you want a glimpse of, of God's character, the character of the eternal king, then Mark is telling you, listen up, because, because Jesus has come on the scene, you can see what the kingdom is like. In him, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he says there in Mark chapter 1. So, so what this means is that as we're in this book, if we allow Mark to kind of take us by the hand and guide us through the kind of life and selected works of Jesus, what we'll do is we'll begin to learn, we'll begin to imbibe the nature of the king, the nature of the kingdom to which we belong. So I just want to encourage you, Christian, take heart. You have a king. You belong to a kingdom. There's many things that can make our hearts anxious and restless. We fight that with the reality that you belong to an eternal, sovereign, almighty king. Now, what is he like? What is his kingdom like? I think this is what we begin to see as we continue on in chapter 1. And listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is wonderful. Let me just invite you to consider Jesus this morning. What you're going to see is there's nobody like Jesus. Nobody. Seems to me in this passage, Mark gives us three scenes. Three scenes. They're going to become our points. Three scenes, three points, three settings. I just want to stop by each of these scenes, draw out some realities about the king and the kingdom. I think we see the first one there in verses 16 through 20. The first point I see there is that the king is about gathering people into his kingdom. Point one, the king is about gathering people into his kingdom. So our first scene, our first setting is the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Kinnereth or Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, if you've been confused about this, that's because it's confusing. So but this is where Jesus is in this scene. It's actually not a sea as we would think about it. It's a, it's a large inland lake. But what happens is its presence forms the industry of this place called Galilee, which means its, its industry is fishing. And it's in this scene that we get our first glimpse, I think, into the nature of the kingdom and the king. And that's because in this scene, Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee to catch some fishermen. All right, look at verse 16. It says there, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he said, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat 
with the hired servants, and they followed him. All right, so here we have the, the telling of Jesus calling these first disciples. We have four fishermen who don't catch anything in the scene. In fact, they themselves are caught, so to speak. So who are they? We have two sets of brothers here in Mark chapter 1. We have Simon, whom we'll come to know as Peter later on in the gospel. So if you've heard of Peter, this is him. We have Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And then we have James and his brother John. So at the end of this scene, Jesus has four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, three of whom will go on to become kind of Jesus' inner circle. Remember that? Peter, James, and John. They'll see Jesus transfigured. They'll be with him in the garden. They'll go on to write New Testament books. It's really amazing. But here at their call, all four of them are fishermen. And it seems this is important, like it, like it sheds some light on the nature of the kingdom of God. So think about it. Jesus, Jesus arrives on the scene. He's baptized into this ministry by the Spirit. He could have gone anywhere to find and, and call his disciples, right? So most of us, frankly, would have gone anywhere else than where Jesus went, right? So Jesus could have gone to the educational institutions, right? He could have, he could have gone to find well-educated people to be his disciples, right? People who could reason and think and debate well. And that would have said something about the nature of the kingdom, that the kingdom is about advancing through intellectual prowess. Or he could have gone to the Roman legions, right? He could have, he could have gone to find physically strong people, ready to do physical battle against physical enemies. This would have said something about the nature of the kingdom. That is for the strong, the able-bodied, for the instinctively courageous. It would have said that the kingdom is for those who are willing to shed the blood of other people to advance the mission of the kingdom. Jesus could have gone to the high places of worldly power, of influence. He could have gone to the offices of politicians and legislators. This would have said something about the nature of the kingdom, that it's that it's about wielding worldly power, about establishing a particular form of worldly government. He could have gone to religious institutions, demonstrating the kingdom is about becoming an expert in the law. But importantly, Jesus evidently went away from those places. He went up to a fishing town, and he called four fishermen to follow him. You know, this is like, this is like a, a leader like flying into Dulles, right, from somewhere around the world, right? And... And why, why would a, a leader, some kind of world leader or influencer, why would they fly into Dulles? Which direction would they be going once they arrive? East, right? That's the place of influence, right? Well, this is Jesus flying into Dulles and going west, right? He's going away from where we would expect him to go. He goes away from the expected people and places of influence. And that's not at all because the people and places of influence are bad, right? So things like thinking well, being physically strong, courageous, being politically influential, being religiously educated. These are all good and serviceable and welcome in the kingdom. But by, by bypassing those types, by heading and, and calling and tasking fishermen, Jesus is making a point about the king. He's making a point about the nature of the kingdom. And the point is that the king is about gathering people into his kingdom. He says, he says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, people. So the task most analogous to the work of the kingdom as it regards other people, it's not debating or physically fighting or battling or legislating. The task most analogous is fishing. It's about, it's about getting more people into the boat. Follow me 
Jesus told his first disciples, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. I just think, just, I mean, this is familiar to us, but how wonderful is this truth? So Jesus comes in the incarnation. He comes to display for us the kingdom of God, right? Jesus comes as the embodiment of the righteous kingdom of eternal holiness and happiness. And what's his first message by what he does? His first message is that the doors of the kingdom are wide open. Come in. That's his first message. The king is a fisherman casting a net to bring more people in. The king is recruiting more fishermen so that more people can be caught, can come in. So when it comes to application of this first point, the the question for everyone here, the first question anyway, is have you come in? Have you come in? You can. You can come into the kingdom of God. You can live eternally with the Christ in holiness and happiness right now. Right now. We don't have to make this more complicated than it is. Listen, yes, think about what you're doing. Consider the cost, but come in. The application, Jesus said in verses 15, is repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Receive Jesus. That's what salvation is. You see who he is, you receive him, you follow him. Notice, notice how the first disciples responded to the call, right? Verse 18, Simon and Andrew, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Verse 20, James and John, immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants and they followed him. It's fascinating, right? We don't have any, any record of the discussions they had, no narration of the decision-making process, only this. This is the message. They heard the call, and immediately they followed Jesus. And it seems to me like in this, this harried way of telling the story, it, I don't think Mark's kind of highlighting for us the rashness of the disciples, right? He's highlighting for us the worth of Jesus. You see that? He, he's worth li- leaving everything to follow. The, the point, when you're just reading the narrative, it's shocking, isn't it, right? Maybe some of you here have gone through uh, Christianity Explored recently, right? And you get to chapter 1 of Mark, and you read, and Jesus says, hey, come follow me, and they do it. And you're like, what in the world? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? It's shocking. Jesus is making a shocking claim on your life that no one can make, no one else should make. That is, leave everything you got and follow me. But what's, what's even more shocking is that he's going to, in the coming chapters, he's going to prove to you that he's actually worth it. He's actually worth leaving everything you know to follow him, everything you once found pleasure in, everything that's killing you because it's separating you from God. Jesus is worth it. Just ask anyone who's made it to glory. Just think the, the biblical picture we have of those saints who have gone before us in death, who are already with the Lord. The reality is that right now, in the glory of heaven, in the presence of Christ and his angels, there's not a single saint Even those who left family, who lost friends, who, like these disciples, were violently killed for their faith, there's not one single person in heaven who has ever, for one single second, regretted leaving their lives of sin to follow Christ. He is worth it. That's the message of the gospel. He is worth following. You'll see it for all eternity. The question is, have you come in? Just give yourself, Christ, I... I repent, I turn from sin, and I want you. I'm following you. That's all they knew. That's all they knew. That's all you need to know. Follow. 
Second thing, though, if you're a Christian, are you living in this reality? That is uh, maybe one simple way to put it is, are you fishing? You know, the thing I love about this analogy that Jesus leads with here in his um, kicking off his ministry is that fishing, like anybody can do it, right? And maybe you're sitting there and you're like, no, I can't. All right, well, I got... Listen, I got a, a picture of my daughter when she was four years old holding, holding up a bass on the end of a line, right? She could do it, right? Maybe you're saying she's exceptional. I would say, yes, she is. There, there are a million different ways to fish, though, right? Making it possible for, possible for a million different people to do it a million different ways, right? You get a cane pole. You, can, you know, you have a bait caster, right? That's probably Brian Conover. He's bait casting, probably. Ice fishing, deep sea fishing, cast net fishing, whatever, Fishing is, it's not always successful, but it's simple. That's the point. It's simple. In fishing, you go to where the fish are, you cast a line, you cast a net, and you wait. Let me just encourage you, Christian. You can, you can live in this way. You can do this, no matter who you are. Remember, one of the points here is that Jesus is not calling people out based on their physical strength or their mental capacity or their, their place of influence. He's calling people out because he's a fisherman wanting more fishermen to gather more people in. That's what he's doing. You and I can fish. You can share the good news of the gospel. That's what I want to encourage you with. And, and you can share it with confidence, not because you're good at it, but because it's the very nature of the king to use you to bring people in. Take your confidence in evangelism from the nature of the kingdom. It's what he's doing. He's bringing people in. And listen, maybe you're a person here who has been gifted in one of the ways that we've talked about, right? Maybe you're strong in some of these areas. Maybe you have a mind. Maybe you have an education that equips you to think, to debate, to reason well. If so, praise God. I would just say fish with it. Lead people to Christ with it. Maybe you're a strong, maybe you're a fit, courageous person. Maybe you're a person of unique position corporately, politically, legislatively. If so, praise God. Boy, do we need you. Praise God. Here's... Here's some encouragement, though. Go to those places where only your badge can get you in and fish. Lead people to Christ right where they are. The nature of our king is that he's all about using his disciples as they use whatever gifts and places of influence, all these things, where they just put lines in the water to bring more people into the kingdom. So it's a good question. Maybe just write it down for application. Maybe talk about it over lunch, dinner, whatever it is. Where can you cast the net of the gospel? Where can you put in a line of the gospel? Your office, your family, your sports teams. You can do it because he's doing it. The work of the kingdom is this glorious work of fishing. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus, the king, he's about gathering people in. He's calling people to himself to follow him. He's gathering people in. That's scene one. Moving on, Mark brings us to another scene in verse 21. Here I want us to see this. Number two, the king is about establishing his authority in the spiritual realm. The king is about establishing his authority in the spiritual realm. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. All right, so our second scene is a religious scene. So they're in Capernaum, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath. 
So Capernaum is just a, another town in that same area on the Sea of Galilee, so they haven't left the area. Jesus is there with his four new disciples, and Mark says that on the Sabbath day, so the Sabbath day would be, be sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, right? Jesus heads to the synagogue, and he teaches. So the Sabbath was a time of rest from work for religious devotion to be taught and the synagogue is where this, could be, this, where this could take place. So Jews would gather in the synagogue on the Sabbath to worship, to hear, teaching. This is when and where Jesus is in this second scene. And notice there's, there's more we don't know than what we do know in these scenes of Mark, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, right? Like, like was Jesus invited to this place? Did he just stroll in during the service and say, okay, thank you very much, I'll take it from here, right? I'm the captain now kind of situation. Mark doesn't say, and it doesn't matter. The point of all this is made by the narration Mark provides in verse 22, and that is that the teaching that Jesus provides is unlike anything these religious people have ever heard. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So again, we don't, we don't know what Jesus said. We don't know what scriptures he unfolded. All we know is, is that Jesus rolled in, and through his teaching, he established an authority, a power, unlike anything they had ever seen in any of their scribes and teachers. And the, and the difference seems to be Unlike the scribes, in his teaching, Jesus was not just pointing to authority. No, in his teaching, Jesus was establishing that he himself is the authority. They can't believe it. The, the narrative proves this by what happens next. A most unexpected thing happens, which is a demon enters a synagogue. Exactly where he's not supposed to be. Verse 23 Immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, so, so just so we're clear here, in the, in the gospel narratives, there are characters called demons, which are synonymous with unclean or impure spirits. So you'll see that all throughout the Gospel of Mark here. And there are a few things that we should probably understand about them. One, impure spirits, unclean spirits, demons, are evil. They are in opposition to God, and they are aligned with Satan. Okay? They're evil. Secondly, they're spiritual. That is, they're real, but they're unseen to the natural eye. Third, they're influential. These unclean spirits have real influence on real people and events. All right, so to sum that up, the world as it stands is a world in which evil, influential, spiritual beings live and move. All right, so what does this mean regarding Jesus? All right, so in the coming of, uh, in coming to this fallen world, Jesus, the cosmic king, it's as if he's entered into enemy territory in these gospels, particularly in Mark. So Satan, Paul says in Ephesians, 
says he's the prince of the power of the air. So that is, in some real way, a consequence of the fall and the curse is that God granted to Satan some kind of true but limited governance in the world. So think of the book of Job, right? Maybe that's a helpful reference. This means that since the fall, the spiritual enemies of God, Satan and his demons, have enjoyed some kind of influence over the fallen, cursed world. So that's the world in which we live. So the eternal question, and one being explored in this narrative, is this. Okay then, well, what would happen? What would happen if the prince of heaven were to come and meet the prince of the earth and his demons, his spirits? And the wonderful thing about these gospels is you don't have to wonder. We know exactly what would happen because it did happen. A couple of things you notice here. One, evil spirits immediately recognize Jesus' authority. Look at verse 23. Again, immediately in their synagogue, uh, there was uh, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What, what do you notice about the unclean spirit's relation to Jesus? He seems to already know him, doesn't he? Notice his exclamation is not, whoa, who, who is this guy? What does he say? What, what are you doing here? See that? You're, you're the Holy One of God. You see how this text, it gives you, it's giving us a sneak peek into this cosmic spiritual war between God and Satan, right? So this is nothing new. It's been going on ever since the fall of the angels. It's just that in Jesus, we're now getting a front row seat into this conflict. And notice, what is the Spirit's big question for Jesus? Verse 24. Have you come to destroy us? Did you get that? The evil spirit assumes that Jesus has come to destroy him. He assumes that Jesus is on the scene to destroy him and every other spiritual being that's rebelled against Christ all over the earth. It's a singular spirit, right? I know who you are. Have you come to destroy us? Church, the, the power of Jesus is no joke. Yes, for our salvation, he has come in the incarnation, tender, meek, and mild. But make no mistake, when it comes to all that's evil and opposed to the kingdom of heaven and the spiritual realm, Jesus is a destroyer. Unclean spirits know that. Second thing we see when evil is confronted by the king is that evil spirits are inescapably subservient to Jesus. You know that? You see that? Evil spirits are inescapably subservient to Jesus. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So as we go along in Mark, we'll, we'll see more of what, um, what's become known as the messianic secret that you see here. That is the, the fact that Jesus desires his, to keep his identity as the Christ hidden for some portion 
of his ministry. So we'll talk about that more as we go. For now, just notice that those evil beings that exist in the spiritual realm, they are absolutely subservient to Christ. So you, you see how this episode is kind of answering some big questions for us, right? So what's the nature of Jesus' kingdom? Um, on what front is he fighting? How is he doing it? All these things. And a few things that this text shows us. One, Jesus is fighting a spiritual battle, which is largely unseen by our eyes, but which does have manifestations in the physical world. Jesus is fighting a spiritual battle. Secondly, it's between legitimate power. So Satan and his unclean spirits, the demons, they have some kind of legitimate power. But third, Jesus has all authority. All authority. All Jesus has to do is say a word and evil spirits flee. So when it comes to kind of application of an episode like this, I think this helps us on several fronts. So for one, I think this helps us to acknowledge the spiritual realm as the Bible acknowledges it, right? So, so the truth is that the Enlightenment has kind of done a number on us Westerners and our ability, our willingness to acknowledge the presence of anything that defies empirical scientific validation, right? We are much more comfortable doing battle with things that we can see, things that we can empirically prove. We are much more comfortable, I could say, doing battle against flesh and blood, uh, against our neighbor. But the Bible reminds us that, in fact, it is precisely not flesh and blood against which we wrestle. But against whom? Against what? Is what Paul explains in Ephesians 6, right? Ephesians 6, 12. We do battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do, we do not need to be obsessed with Satan. We do not need to be obsessed with demons, find them under every rock, all these things. But the truth is that Paul, Paul is speaking to the church here, right? And he says straight up that our battle is not against, it is against cosmic powers. It is against the present darkness. It's against spiritual forces of evil. So Mark 1 comes along and it's showing us that the coming of the kingdom, it is not a clash of worldly empires. Do you see that? This is why most people were disappointed in him. It is not a struggle between human authorities, right? This is not Israel versus Rome when Jesus comes, right? And today it's not U.S. versus China or fill in whatever. No, this is a cosmic struggle against God, between God and Satan, between good and evil, between light and darkness. And what's at stake? It's not a, some kind of modern local territory or plunder. It's the hearts and souls of human beings. I think it helps us to remember the nature of the battle. You see that? You know, very practically, what this means is that the basic application is unfortunately one that's pretty difficult, I think, for us, for, for Westerners, for Americans, for people have have an instinct to kind of get up and fix things. Do you remember what Paul's application was in Ephesians 6, this reality? Ephesians 6, 18. Finally gets to what we can do. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. It seems to me the hard truth is that we'll know, we'll know that we're beginning to understand the nature of the battle we're in when we are dedicating ourselves to prayer. And we can pray. We can pray with great confidence because the text shows us that Jesus has all authority in this battle. His kingdom has never sniffed a single legitimate threat. Do you know that? He has all authority. In Mark 1, as kind of this paradigmatic display, Jesus disarms a demon, right? He says, all right, you get out, be quiet, don't say anything. And he does. But what we'll see later on in Mark is that Jesus goes on to disarm Satan himself. And this he does, interestingly, as the, as the story climaxes, not by decree and certainly not by calling down legions of angels from heaven. How does he do it? Jesus disarms Satan and the ruling authorities by what? By shedding his blood. Jesus, Paul says, Colossians 2, he says he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's put them to open shame by his death on the cross. Because it's by his death that he has ransomed people out of slavery to Satan into the freedom of the kingdom of the beloved son. Is this amazing what Jesus is doing? This is the nature of the kingdom. It's worth asking, how, how are we fighting the battle? Who, who are we fighting? Our disagreeable neighbors? Our political rivals? Listen, there's work to be done there, but we've got to remember they are not the true enemy. They are, actually, they're fish to be caught. They're eternal souls presently enslaved by the true enemy, Satan. And the way we fight, the way we defeat, the way we disarm spiritual authorities is, is the same way Jesus did. That is, by his atoning blood. That's why Paul is so, so adamant in 1 Corinthians 3 that he will not fight with anything less than the foolish message of the cross. Jesus shedding his blood to free people from bondage to sin and Satan. Church, we fight. We fight this battle. Absolutely fight. But we fight on spiritual fronts through prayer, through evangelism, the preaching of the crucified Christ. The kingdom of Satan, I think what this shows us, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world, it's no match for the kingdom of Christ. So take heart. It's not under threat. And that's because Jesus has all authority. Don't you love the reaction in verse 27? The people say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. It's like they're, they're relieved. Finally, somebody. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once... His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We got one final stop. So one final scene, scene three. This brings us out of the synagogue into a home. And the point it makes is this. So point three, the king is about delivering people out of oppression. The king is about delivering people out of oppression. The third scene is a home. It's the home of Simon and Andrew. They were brothers Evidently, Peter was, or Simon was, 
married because we're about to meet his mother-in-law. So you have a group of people living in this home. That's where they are. Verse 29. Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And it's, so it's, it's in this home now, as the story goes on, that Jesus, beginning with Peter's own mother-in-law, he proceeds to do a whole lot of two things, all right? A whole lot of two things. Heal diseases and cast out demons. So what he's going to do here? You see that in verse 30. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. She began to serve them. And so at this point, the Sabbath ends at sundown. And the floodgates just open to the home of Simon and Andrew. Listen to verse 32. That evening at sundown, so word has spread. They brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Just think of this scene, right? So it's one, it's one thing to have like a mob of people, right? It's a, whole, it's a whole other thing to have a mob of sick people, like really sick people, like lifelong sick people, disfigured people, people acting crazy with unclean spirits. They're all... All of them are, they're descending, right? I think of the thriller video, right? They're all descending on the house of Simon. And again, don't let this go by without allowing this to form, to form your view of what kind of king we have in Christ. The absolute worst people, the, the most sickly, the, the weakest, the most deformed, the most possessed by evil, these are the folks being brought to the king. And these are the ones being welcomed by him. Do you see this? The, there's, a, there's a picture of the gospel in this. And that is the, the message of the gospel is not clean yourself up and then come to Jesus, hoping he, hoping he might accept you somehow. The message of the gospel is come, come to Jesus. He'll do the washing up. He'll do the cleaning and the, and the sanctifying and the setting apart as holy. He'll do that part, but you come. Look at verse 34. He healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because again, they knew him. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, the king of heaven, has shown up on earth. And what happens? Crowds of people, people who have been cursed by the fall, who have been enslaved by the devil, they come to Jesus, and what does he do? He gets rid of sickness and he gets rid of evil. He sets people free from physical pain and affliction, and he sets people free from, from spiritual oppression. He reverses the curse. You see what he's doing? That's what he's doing. He's saying, this is how it is, and this is not how it's supposed to be. Let me show you how it's going to be. Out of here. He takes the brokenness of sickness and disease, right, Sickness and disease, these are intruders into a well-created world. And he, he heals it up. He heals brokenness and sickness. He mends it. He's a physician. He takes evil spirits. He takes rebels against God, tormentors of people made in the image of God, and he casts them out. He puts them apart. He, he draws a dividing line between them and his people. This is the character of the kingdom of God. This is the heart of the king. Just think on this for a second. You know, one thing I realized as I was thinking about these things this week is that I sometimes, I just take for granted, I take for granted the heart of God for suffering sinners. 
I wonder if that's ever true of you. I wonder if we take for granted, namely that God's compassionate. That do you take for granted the fact that God hates suffering and death? God opposes sickness. God loves to deliver people from spiritual oppression. He loves to have mercy on sinners. He loves to save people from their slavery to sin. This is what we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark. The very heart of God in the person of Jesus as he lays out the nature of the eternal kingdom. That's what he's doing. This, this deliverance from all kinds of invasive, hostile oppression. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. And these glimpses of him reversing the curse, what we know from the rest of the Bible, they are just a foretaste of of what the coming of the kingdom in full is going to be. So the fact that Jesus is here on earth, the fact is that Jesus is here on earth, he's here to do far more than just kind of patch up a few people, right? These are just pictures of the bigger thing that he's doing, right? What he's doing is he's reclaiming this fallen creation and fallen people for himself. The best way I can think of to sum it up is, in all this physical healing and all this spiritual deliverance, Mark's showing us this. Because the kingdom of God is at hand, the curse is on the clock. Maybe that's one way to think about it. The curse is on the clock. The hourglass, the spiritual hourglass, has been flipped. You see what this means? It means that this world... Right? Like, sometimes we're tempted to think like this, right? Like, the world's just kind of mindlessly meandering wherever fate might take it. This may, no. No, the gospel of Jesus shows us that's exactly what's not happening. The fact that God has an anointed king named Jesus, and that Jesus has a heavenly kingdom, soon to be established on earth, it means that, that life, your life, human history, it's not just an endless cycle. It's not just sin, suffering, death, sin, suffering, death. That's not what's happening. History is not just a record going around on repeat. It's not circular. It's linear. It's going somewhere because God is taking it somewhere. The story that had a beginning in which we're living now, it has an end. It has an end. The God who started it all will end it all. And he will end it on his terms. Maybe you have fears about how this world is going to end. All these things, all this apocalyptic language, all these things. Listen, I don't know how all the things are going to go down, but what I do know is it's going to end on God's terms with Jesus as king. I don't fear those things. We don't have to fear those things. We're his people in his kingdom. Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand, it means that the end game has begun. A new age. A new age of which these, the things in this passage are just a foretaste. It's coming soon. Verse 34, it seems like is that, is that foretaste, right? Sickness, it's gone. Demonic oppression, gone. In their place, you have Christ. You have a king. You have a kingdom. Listen, I know, I know as a, even as a Christian, it's easy to be anxious in these times, right? The, time, the, the times we, in which we live, they really are difficult. They really are dark. It seems that the Bible would have you take heart, we do, we really do have a perfect, a righteous, and unimpeachable king. He's already come once. He's already disarmed Satan by the blood of the cross. And the Bible says he'll soon come again. He's coming to reclaim this world for an eternal, peaceful kingdom. He's going to bring us in. He's going to establish his authority over everything. He's going to deliver us once and for all from all kinds of oppression. 
Soon, church. Very soon. Until then, we wait. We fight on his terms. We pray. One of the best ways we do that, one of the best ways we wait when we come together is we come together not forsaking the Lord's Supper together. Because it's here at the Lord's Supper that we keep, we keep proclaiming until he returns the death of Christ in the place of us sinners. This gives us a lot of hope. So before we come, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we do set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. We pray for your help. We struggle in our minds, in our emotions, in our lives. We struggle to live by faith. We pray that you would help us by your spirit. We pray that our anxious hearts would be stilled. We pray that you would put steel in our spines for life of spiritual battle. We pray that you would uh, strengthen our hands and our weak knees. Now we want to be filled with your spirit so that we live faithfully here and now. We want to live in the reality of Jesus as our king. And we pray for your help in this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.